when we lived in Casper, Wyoming, for about 14 years, there was a mountain just south of town called Casper Mountain. Not the most creative title for a, a, a place, but it was the mountain, it was by Casper, and we absolutely loved going up to Casper Mountain. Um, it was just like we could be in the mountains in like 20 minutes from our house. And we would go up there all the time in the summer and the fall and spring, a little bit in the winter. It got a little dicey sometimes, but if the roads got plowed and cleared off, it was just an amazing place to be in every season of the year. And we thoroughly enjoyed exploring new places and going to favorite places. And maybe you have a place that comes to mind as I describe Casper Mountain to you, a place that would be similar in your life. Uh, here now, there's not as many mountains in Sioux Falls as there were in Casper. And when I say mountains, I mean, you know, like exposed rock mountains. But we've come to love Newton Hills. We go to Newton Hills often um, and spend time there and hike and explore and have a campfire and cook out and just love being in nature. And, and perhaps you have a place that's coming to mind as well. And so it was interesting, in 2012, a year before we left, there was a wildfire that began on Casper Mountain and moved, it started on the back side of the mountain, and then it moved over the front side of the mountain. There's a picture that was taken at night of the Casper Mountain fire. And it was scary, and it was sad to see this, you know, beautiful place being, being, set ablaze, essentially, and we weren't sure, you know, we couldn't get up there at all. They didn't want anybody up there that didn't have to be up there, evacuated places. We weren't sure if some of our favorite places, you know, were going to make it, and uh, fortunately they did, and and most of our favorite places survived, Um, and there weren't a lot of structures that got lost in the fire, but there was quite a bit, and it scarred that landscape. And that's going to tie in a little bit later on more directly, but it obviously sets the table for our holy fire sermon series that we're continuing. We're right in the middle of it right now. It's a five-week series. This is week three, and we're going to be looking at this idea that our God is a consuming fire. If you're going to have a series on holy fire, you'd probably better talk about this verse, which is quoted in the New Testament book of Hebrews from the Old Testament and Deuteronomy and several other places where this idea of God being a consuming fire is presented. And as we've been doing throughout this series, we'll be looking at the Old Testament, we'll be looking at the New Testament. We are looking for times in which the idea or the representation or the illustration of holy fire is presented to us. And what can we learn from that? And how can we apply that to our lives? Last week, we talked about this idea that that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace show us that suffering is inevitable in our lives, however, growth is optional. And we talked about how we can choose to grow through those fires. The week before that, we looked at Pentecost and how on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming into that place and lighting upon the, the heads of those that were there like a fiery tongue and, and speaking and, I mean, speaking in multiple languages. And we looked at this idea that God gives his power for his purposes, that God had a purpose for that holy fire coming into that presence, into that place. And so today, as we consider a consuming fire, as I mentioned, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible with you, you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. If you'd like a Bible, there's some in the seats in front of you. If you're in the room here, And you can turn to page 1878. This will be our primary text for today. If you're joining us online, we're so glad that you're with us. encourage you to open up a Bible in front of you, or these uh, scriptures will be on the screen as well. But 
In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is an interesting book because we're not quite sure who the author is. For the most part, we've got a pretty good idea, especially in the New Testament, who wrote the books. In fact, a lot of the books are titled by the name of the author, and that makes it really easy. Hebrews, the author never identifies himself. And so there's a number of different theories. I encourage people not to get too bogged down in that because ultimately, God wrote it, right? And whoever that human author is, is merely the pen in God's hand. And uh, in the book of Hebrews, uh, we do know a couple things about it. We do know that its audience was primarily those who had grown up in the Hebrew culture, in the Jewish culture, and had converted to Christianity. And over and over in Hebrews, there's this language that Jesus is better, that the new covenant is better, that, that this, this new thing that God is doing is so much better than what God had done in the past. And that was an important message for those Hebrew converts because they were always, uh, there was a temptation to go back to what was familiar, to go back to what, what they understood, to go back to what didn't come with some of the same price tags that following Jesus was coming. In fact, I did a series on this several years ago called Better Than Ever, and it was walking through Hebrews and looking at a number of these better than statements, that Jesus is a better high priest, that, that the new covenant is a better covenant. And, and if you want to find that, you can go to our sermons page on our website and actually request, and, and Jody will send you all of, a link to those messages so that you could listen to that series if you really get excited about that. But other than the better than statements, that Jesus is better, that the new is better than the old, there are a number of warnings in the book of Hebrews. And they typically come after one of these better than statements is discussed at length, and there's a warning. Because now that we know this, we're accountable for this, don't turn away, don't fall away. And we see one of those warnings in the passage that we're going to look at today. So I want to start with verse 29, a little, little in, unconventional here. We're going to start at the end, and then we'll come back. To the beginning. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, anybody who has ever wanted to memorize scripture, this is a great verse to start. It's pretty short, right? Like you could probably memorize it in the next 30 seconds. For our God is a consuming fire. Say that with me. For our God is a consuming fire. Now close your eyes and say it one more time. For our God is a consuming fire. See, you just memorized scripture. You got a whole verse, right? And it's not even John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. That's like the shortest verse in scripture. Now you can add this to that and you can get on a roll and, and who knows, maybe you'll be doing whole chapters and books here pretty soon. But this is quoting Deuteronomy 4.24 where Moses says to the people of Israel, for our God is a consuming fire. And this language is used several times in the prophets, predominantly with Isaiah and Zephaniah. They refer to God as a consuming fire. And generally, the, the context for that or the application of that is that God is a consuming fire who will burn away or consume anything that opposes him. So sometimes it's used that God is going to go before the people of Israel with their, against their enemies and be a consuming fire. But other times it's more interior to the people of God that he will be a consuming fire among them as well. And even within us in our own hearts that he can be a consuming fire. Consuming anything that opposes him. Consuming anything that is not in line with his will. And his will is good. And so it's not bad 
that God is a consuming fire that burns away anything that opposes him. If he was a tyrant, that would be a really bad thing. Because he is perfectly good, this is really good news. This is a good element of who God is. And so as we uh, look through this passage, now I want to back up and we'll look at this in the broader context. So I want to look at verses 18 through 21. Verses 18 through 21. This is what the context of that declaration that is being quoted uh, comes from. And so the writer of Hebrews says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. And the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Now, right here in verses 18 through 25, there's sort of some contrast between some literal physical things that happened in in Israel's history and some spiritual or figurative applications of that. In this case... When it talks about coming to a mountain, it's referring to a historical event in the people of God and the people of, of Israel. When they came to Mount Sinai, after they had been delivered from Egypt, and after the, 12, or after the ten plagues, and they go through the Red Sea, then they come to Mount Sinai, and the law is given to them. And the, this interaction that takes place between God and Moses and the people at Mount Sinai, you can read about it in Exodus 19 through 24, and then kind of beyond there, it's referenced quite a bit. And it's a, it's a receiving of and a confirmation of the first covenant, the first covenant between God and his people, the old covenant with the law and the Ten Commandments and everything that came from that and the additional teachings about what holiness looked like. And so there was this setting where all the people of God, somewhere around two million of the Israelite people are standing before the mountain and it's on fire like that picture that I showed you earlier. And there is smoke and there is a thundering voice and it was a pretty terrifying experience. In fact, Moses and Joshua are called by God to go up the mountain They're the exclusions to this this law, and they go up and they spend 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God. And there is very real fear and terror, not just reverential awe. This is no evening campfire experience. They're terrified. And this kind of display of the awesomeness of God we don't get very many opportunities, most of us, to see that very often. If we're lucky, maybe one or two or three times, we are just overwhelmed with the awesome glory and power of God in a physical manifestation. I can tell you about one that I've experienced myself, and it was a, it was a summer thunderstorm in the prairies of South Dakota, and it came in fast from the south. And the sky darkened, and there was more lightning in that 30 or 40 minutes as that storm moved through just to the south of where I was than I have ever seen in my life. And it was right there in front of me. And I was taking pictures, and I was taking videos, and God had my absolute attention. My absolute attention. And at the end of that, at the end of that thunderstorm, as it moved through, This crown of light appeared on the horizon 
like nothing I've ever seen before. And so this picture, there's, there's lightning in that picture. If you look closely, you can see it behind this cloud of light, crown of light as that, as that storm is moving on. And the sun's behind me. The sun is setting behind me. So this is on the eastern horizon at the evening when this picture is taken. And it was just unmistakable crown of light. And then I started to reflect on some of the things that had been happening in my life in just the prior 24 hours as God was really getting my attention on some areas in my life that needed to change. And as that crown of light got brighter and brighter and the storm moved farther and farther along, a double rainbow appears over that crown of light. And you can barely see the, the primary rainbow. There was a second one behind it. Sometimes cameras just fall short. This is the closest thing to a literal theophany that I've ever had, if you're familiar with that term. It's, it's when God shows up in a physical manifestation. And if I had just been kind of minding my own business and not really aware of his presence in my life, I might have thought this was just a cool storm. But I had been doing some serious business with God on a personal spiritual retreat, and he was showing me some things in my life, and I was laying them at his feet. And then this happens, and this shows up. And it was a powerful manifestation of God's sovereignty and glory and power and majesty in my own life. And so the writer of Hebrews is employing this historical memory, this historical imagination of the people of God that this is such a part of their history and they remember this time at Mount Sinai so powerfully and he's making a very important point as he says, you have not come to an experience like Mount Sinai because Jesus is better. He's established that earlier in the book because the new covenant is better than the old. And as we're going to see in the next three verses, in verses 22 through 24, Mount Zion is infinitely better than Mount Sinai. And so let's continue reading in verse 22. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant in the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so not only is Jesus better than Moses, and not only is the new covenant better than the old, but Zion is better than Mount Zion, Mount Sinai. And this is where we move from the literal physical manifestation of God at Mount Sinai to this spiritual reality that is available to the people of God now, to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a new spiritual reality available for believers. And he's basically saying we have spiritual access to join the angels and the saints who are already worshiping God in eternity. We have access to that through Jesus Christ. We have access to eternity right now. Through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit living within us, through the fellowship of believers. Because there is no death in Christ. And I talk about this every now and then because it's so easy to forget and it's so easy to slip into this idea that we're going to live our lives and then we're going to die and then eternal life is going to start after we die. 
But if it's eternal life, it started at the moment that we received Christ as Lord and Savior and gave our lives to him and surrendered to him and repented from our sin and began moving through life with him, with the Holy Spirit within us. That's when eternal life began, not at some future point. And so we are now eternal beings who are redeemed for his glory to spend eternity praising him with the saints, with the angels. As the church of the firstborn, did you catch, did that little phrase catch your attention? And you wonder, what's the church of the firstborn? And, and so I wanted to spend just a moment talking about the church of the firstborn because that word church is the Hebrew word, I'm sorry, the Greek word, ekklesia. Ekklesia just means the called out assembly, the called out assembly of the firstborn. And you might be thinking, well, isn't Jesus the firstborn? Yes, Jesus is designated as the firstborn in Hebrews 1.6, the firstborn before all creation. But here in Hebrews 12, it is not capitalized and it is plural. And it's making this declaration that we as believers in Jesus Christ are the church of the firstborn. We are the called out assembly of the firstborn, meaning we have the inheritance of firstborn sons and daughters in the family of God. This is good news, especially to a patriarchal society where the firstborn got a double blessing, a double share of the inheritance. He's saying you're the church of the firstborn, the plural firstborn. You're all part of the firstborn. You're all firstborn sons in the kingdom of God. There are no secondborn sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. We have an inheritance as the firstborn in the kingdom of God. So not only is Jesus better than Moses and the new covenant better than the old and Mount Zion better than Mount Sinai, but here in verse 24, We have a better mediator. Christ is the better mediator of the better covenant. The new covenant is better. And Jesus is the mediator of that covenant. He mediates it to us. He brings it to us. And he is our one mediator, our one go-between, our one high priest. This is all very, very good news. And it's all pointing to this warning that we're going to see in verse 25 through 27. Remember I said that Hebrews is a collection of better than teachings, that the new is better than the old, as well as warnings. And so in verse 25, we get the warning. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And the words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. There's a lot going on here. And you might remember in the last year we did a series titled Unshakable, and we were talking about unshakable faith and unshakable hope, and we talked about an unshakable kingdom, and we looked at this passage. So if you really want to do a deep dive on this section Go find Unshakable. It was in the last year. Find that series and and listen to the message on the Unshakable Kingdom. But for right now, we need to understand that this warning is to not refuse God and his revelation. Because there was a generation at Mount Sinai, and that entire generation perished. They died in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. Because they did not respond in faith to what was foretold to what was promised, to what was explained, and to what was instructed. That generation that refused God at Mount Sinai perished and did not enter into the promised land. 
And so the writer of Hebrews is giving a very strong warning with this context and with this social memory that everybody was aware of and everybody understood exactly what was being stated here. And the application for us is that we must respond in faith to what is revealed in Christ. If we have, and if we do, we spend eternity with him, worshiping him in the presence of the angels forever in the new heavens and the new earth. The stakes are pretty high. If we ignore this, it comes at a great cost. And if we respond in faith to this and we reorient our lives to this truth, then the blessings and the benefits of that are eternal and are massive. And that's where we find our topic for today, our our title for today's message in verse 28 through 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You see, we are receiving an unshakable kingdom. Everything that opposes God will eventually be burned away completely. And all that's remained is this, that will remain is this unshakable kingdom of God, the order of authority of God. That's what that word kingdom really means. It's an order of authority. We have those in political kingdoms in our world. Uh, we have orders of authority that are divine. And there is a divine order of authority, and it is unshakable. And the appropriate response, as we see in verse 28, is gratitude and worship, reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. And that's really good news. If you have come to faith in Christ and you have turned your life over to him, we don't need to be afraid and terrified like Israel was at Mount Sinai is the main point that the, the, the speaker is making here, that the writer of Hebrews is making here. We don't need to be terrified. We need to be grateful and we need to worship God and we need to do so with reverence and awe. But we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be terrified because God has proven in Jesus that we have nothing to fear. That he will only burn away what is good. I'm sorry, he will only burn away what is bad. Don't you ever wish you could just back it up, start over. He will only burn away what is bad. If he burns it away, it's because it's not good. And interestingly enough, there's a place in the Gospels where John the Baptist points to this quite clearly and quite precisely. In Luke chapter 3, you can turn there or it's going to be on the screen behind me. But in Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, John the Baptist says in verse 16, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Interesting. And he's talking about Jesus. That part is pretty easy to connect. The next verse is a little harder to understand in some translations. The next part says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Everybody got that? You know exactly what it's saying, what it means? How many of you have a winnowing fork? (laughs) Two? (laughs) That's more than I thought. I got a faucet. (laughs) That's my winnowing fork. There's the water. I got several faucets. This can be a tough one to understand. Fortunately, Eugene Peterson, I think, did a masterful job translating these these two verses in the message translation. So I want to read that to you in the message translation because I think 
that makes it a little clearer. And I always tell people, read multiple passages. If the first one doesn't make sense, read it in a different translation. Uh, Get your commentary out. Do a little digging. But here, Peterson makes it clear. He says, John intervened and said in verse 16, I am baptizing you here in the river. The main character in this drama, Jesus, to whom I'm a mere stagehand, will ignite the kingdom life, a fire, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house. Make a clean sweep of your lives. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God and everything false he'll put out with the trash to be burned. That's a helpful rephrasing. That's pretty vivid imagery to what this really means that our God is a consuming fire. And even John the Baptist understood this. This great, great prophet. Jesus said no greater prophet among the sons of women, of men, than John the Baptist understood this. What was going to happen? What was the big picture? And so you might be saying, okay, so what do we do, Pastor Mark? What's our part in this? And I think Paul hit the nail on the head in Romans 12. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but it's going somewhere. It's going to all become really clear. In Romans chapter 12, this great passage, which I may quote more than any other passage from this stage because it's such a central and powerful passage. In Romans 12, Paul says that we are to... Let me just read it to you. (laughs) I was trying to get into it, but... It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... In view of Christ, in view of all that's been done for us, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What happened to the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament? Do you know? They were put on a fire, right? They were burned away. And Paul is telling us, and it connects to what John the Baptist said, and it connects to what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that we are to offer our lives as living sacrifices, our very selves as living sacrifices, so that the holy fire of God, the consuming fire of God, can come into our lives and burn away whatever is not in line with God's will. And then we're told, We'll be able to test and approve what his good, perfect, and pleasing will truly is. And so God sends his holy fire to consume anything in us that's not in line with his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And as disciples, we should be on fire for God and yet not consumed. You might say, well, how do I do this? How do I, how do I offer? Well, you start by prayer. I believe everything starts with prayer and a, and a heartfelt prayer that says, God... I'm laying myself at your feet each day. And I'm asking you to be a consuming fire in my life. I'm asking you to burn away anything that is not in line with your will today. And a lot of times when when we think of prayer, when I thought of prayer 15 years ago, I thought of what you did before a meal, right? (laughs) Please bless this food. I thought of formal prayers in church and various settings, but, but this is more of like a Psalm 139 prayer that says, God, search me and know me. Know my anxious thoughts. Not just the pretty church stuff, but the anxious thoughts. Test my heart and show me if there is any offensive way. And then lead me in the way everlasting. I'm talking that kind of prayer. 
And when we start praying that kind of prayer and we engage in scripture with those sets of eyes and we engage in fellowship with one another and holding one another accountable, that's when God, is, as a consuming fire, can burn away anything that goes against his will for us. In fact, there's a 24 hours of prayer. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. There's a sign-up sheet today for the 24 hours of prayer. I would absolutely, you know what would thrill me beyond anything you can possibly imagine is that if, ever, if there was a line to sign up for the 24 hours of prayer at the end of the service and at the end of the next service. A typical 24 hours of prayer for us, we run these from 5 p.m. on a Friday night to 5 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon. It's 24 hours. It's designed so you can do it when you get off work. You can do it in the morning. If you're a night owl, you can do it late. If you're an early riser, you can do it early. If Wherever, it can fit in your day. And a typical 24 hours of prayer, we get about 20, 25% of our congregation to participate. And I dream of a prayer-filled church. I dream when we do these that 50, 60, 70, 100% of the people that call this their church home would carve out an hour to pray, to pray Psalm 139 types of prayers, to pray for our church, to pray for God's kingdom, to be unleashed in our community and around the world. And this 24 hours of prayer is special. We're actually going to have you start here like we normally do, coming in through that that door by the kitchen, and then we're going to take you on a tour through the whole church so that this whole church will be saturated in prayer as we begin our fall ministry season. And so you'll have an opportunity to pray in various locations where various types of ministry are done, and then you can end up here in the sanctuary. My hope, my prayer is that an hour is not enough, that there's a lot of people that sign up for an hour and are here for two or three because they are just so at peace and so satisfied in the presence of God. And so I encourage you to be a part of that. So that we as disciples can be on fire for God and yet not consumed entirely. And that leads us to our bottom line. Our bottom line is that I believe, and I believe Scripture is telling us, that God's holy fire consumes our flesh, but it strengthens our spirit. It consumes our flesh. It consumes those parts of us that are not redeemed by God. Those parts of us that are part of our sin nature that we were born with. It burns those away. It burns away the temptations. It burns away the sin that so easily entangles, which the writer of Hebrews just talked about at the beginning of chapter 12. It consumes our sin. It consumes our pride. It consumes our false self and our ego and all of those things that set themselves up in opposition to God. And bring temptation into our lives. But it doesn't just consume our flesh. That strengthens our spirit. As our flesh is burned away, as we willingly make ourselves living sacrifices that he can burn away that which opposes him, then our spirit is in step with God's spirit and our spirit is strengthened. Our spirit thrives in that and grows in that. And then the fruit of the spirit becomes more and more a part of our daily moment-by-moment lives. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We see that over and over, and it becomes easier and easier because our God is in consuming fire, and he's burned away as we lay ourselves on the altar every day and say, God, burn away anything that's against your will. It burns that away, and now we're able to test and approve his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so it gets easier and easier. And it reminds me of a Dallas Willard quote, it's not how hard you try to follow Jesus, it's how easy it becomes. It's the true test of discipleship. That's that's when we're growing. That's when the consuming fire is burning away the things in us that are not in line with his will. And that's 
when our spirits are strengthened. That's when we can be in step with the Spirit. And so we have to make sure that we haven't built any spiritual firewalls. Spiritual firewalls. Have you ever heard of of firewalls in commercial buildings and industrial buildings? They have firewalls. When a building gets over a certain size, the engineers and the architects will put a firewall in that building so that if a fire starts in one part of the building, it can be contained for long enough that the emergency services can get there and put it out and the sprinklers can work and in fact, Linwood has, spirit, has firewalls in our construction. You're sitting in the sanctuary. There's a red circle there, and this map is kind of meant to orient you to Linwood. And the yellow bar there is a firewall. And so if there were to be a fire in one part of the building on the north end, they would have two hours before it would reach through that two-hour firewall and get to the south end, or vice versa. These are a really good idea in commercial and industrial settings. They're a terrible idea in our spiritual lives. We should not have spiritual firewalls. And yet I believe a lot of Christians, a lot of people have spiritual firewalls. They've built up spiritual firewalls. Usually this is not intentional. Sometimes it is. And I've heard people say, well, I just don't want Jesus messing with that part of my life. But usually it's a little bit more subconscious or unconscious. And this holy or the spiritual firewall gets erected and these are places where god is not given free reign in our lives and he's a gentleman he won't go where he's not invited in fact there's a c.s lewis quote from mere christianity to this point i want you to listen to this he says imagine yourself as a living house god comes in to rebuild that house At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed to be done, so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is that he's building a quite different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards... You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And so the question is, are you willing to give Jesus the master key? Are you willing to completely surrender to his renovation, to his plans? Are you willing to completely surrender your lives, to make yourself a living sacrifice every single day, turning your will, turning your thoughts, turning your very life over, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's hard and it hurts abominably. Are you willing to stop saying, that's just the way I am? To those that you encounter, to those that are maybe closest to you, to stop saying, that's just the way I am about the bad habits and the addictions or rude behavior or just plain sin. You see, if it's sin, Jesus intends for it to be a part of who you were, not a part of who you are. If it's sin, he intends for his holy fire to burn it away. If it's sin, he intends for it to be a part of your past, not a part of your present or your future. So are you willing to 
completely surrender and to stop saying that's just a part of who I am? Are you willing to turn over your cell phone and the things you look at, the media you consume or what you put on social media? Are you willing to turn over your finances and say, God, if there's some things that we're spending money on that we shouldn't and they're keeping us from pursuing your priorities, we lay that at your feet. Are you willing to surrender your time? Say, God, my time isn't really my time. My time is your time. My energy isn't really my energy. It's your energy. Burn away my desire for anything that is not your desire for me. Are you willing to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God so that his holy fire can consume your flesh but strengthen your spirit? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your goodness that we can trust you, Lord. We don't have to wonder if what you're going to do when we surrender to you is good. You've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt for all time that it's good, that you only want what's best for us. Help us to trust you. Help us to surrender to you. Help us to be purified by your holy fire. That you would consume those parts of us that are not bringing you honor and glory, that are not helping us to test and approve your good, perfect, and pleasing will. And would you strengthen our spirits, Lord, that we could follow you, that we could serve you, that we could grow in your grace and spread your truth. In Jesus' name we pray.